uh, for a wee interview. Um, just logging in here. Is your mic on? Uh, yes, it's on there. Can everyone hear him? Thumbs up, yeah? Good job. Um, so, who are you? Put <laughs> it bluntly. You're such a random person, so you are. You really are. That's good good to know. You're quite random. Uh, I am uh, Glenn Johnston. That's nice to know. Uh, Do you want to generally introduce yourself? Like, do you have family? Do you have stuff you like, stuff you don't like? Do you want to kind of go for that? I'll go for it. Yeah, that's fine. No problem. uh, I'm married to a very beautiful woman called Heidi. That sounds uh, good. Yes, she's nice. She's very nice. And, uh, but she's my wife, so don't we get any ideas? You know? uh, oh no. <laughs> and with two, with two wee girls, uh, Ellie's nine and Lara's six. Uh, they're both sort of, Ellie's, Ellie's really nice. Uh, and Lara, I really like Lara, I love Lara, she's my daughter, but she's sort of, she can be a wee bit of a, a rascal. Even last week we're driving in the car, just myself and the girls, and uh, we're coming around the corner, and Ellie, my eldest daughter, said, Dad, there was a lady in that car and she was smiling at you. So I said, well, she probably fancies me. That's why she was smiling. And, and she just smiled. But Lara said, don't be ridiculous, Dad. She wouldn't fancy you. So <laughs> that's a sort of, she's a bit harsh. But uh, anyway, two of you girls. So just in a few lighthearted questions, did you win your game of Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizards, Bach? See, to be honest with you, I didn't play the game of Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizards. I am sorry. Did it just confuse you? It, it really did. It yeah. was a whole lizard. I couldn't get the lizard, but you, you just need to go on YouTube and just learn the rules, and you'll be sweet. As soon as I get home, that's the first thing I'm going to do tonight. <laughs> that that sounds good. <laughs> um, which is your favourite, tea or coffee? Coffee. Coke or Pepsi? Uh, Coke. Rugby or football? Football. Max or PCs? Say again. Max or PCs? Um, I have a PC, but if I had more money, I would definitely go for a Mac. UUJ or Queens? Oh, you, you, Jay. You. Guitars or piano? Uh, guitars. Red or blue? Um, red. Samsung or Apple? Apple. If you could have one person or thing with you all the time, what would it be? My wife. Your wife? Aww. Uh, what is your favorite Bible verse? Oh, my fa- the, probably the verse that inspires me more than anything in terms of what I do is Judges chapter 2. Uh, verse 10, which says, after that whole generation died, uh, a new generation grew up who knew neither of the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And I, I work a lot with children and youth. So just this idea of trying to speak to young people about the Lord and that they wouldn't grow up not knowing him. So that would probably be the most significant verse. That's something to forget. What's your job or do you have one? Uh, I'm, a, <laughs> 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 I'm a wing walker. Okay. I'm not sure what that means, but okay. You know the wee airplanes where you see people walking on the wings and standing on... I do, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> I, uh, I was a youth pastor in my church up until about four years ago, and I'm now uh, work in schools and uh, churches and preaching and teaching and that sort of stuff. So full-time Christian work. Exciting stuff. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like exciting spot. <laughs> you sound so excited right now. <laughs> uh, what is your favourite book of the Bible, if you have one, that is? Oh, I tell you what, it's not Daniel anyway, after studying it. <laughs> um, oh, favourite book of the Bible? 
I don't know that there's one. Maybe James, the wee book of James, because it's so practical just in terms of everyday life. Okay. In 30 seconds, what are you speaking on tonight? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that might finish my message. Um, I'm speaking on Daniel's chapter 7 uh, and Daniel chapter 7 and 8. And uh, I'm not going to, which may disappoint people, I'm not going to talk a lot about the prophecy side of things. I'm going to mention that, but I'm going to speak, I think, what is more important, the practical application to our lives of that book um, and what it means to us in our day-to-day -day living. Wonderful. And the last question, big one, when did you get saved? When I was 10. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> Do you want to elaborate on maybe how or? Yeah, uh, I, my parents, no interest in church, thankfully my grandparents did, so they forced us to go every week. Uh, Sunday school teacher one week asked us who were Christians. A few of the boys put their hand up, I wasn't one. He went on to explain what it meant, what would happen if you weren't a Christian. So out of fear, more than anything else, uh, I became a Christian that night when I went home. And probably the next lot of, couple of years really understood fully what that meant and it had uh, started to impact me more in the maybe a few years afterward rather than the actual decision itself. Okay, that's wonderful again. Um, I'm just gonna pray for you now and then I think it's the collection. Uh, Marcus, do you want to come up and play for that or? <coughs> you have a video, that's wonderful. Uh, right, so I'm gonna pray now. Um, Lord, we pray that you will help Glenn as he brings the message tonight. We pray that you will give the words to him, Lord, and that um, through the message, people um, would be spoken to, Lord, and that... Um good. Well, it is very good to... Uh to be here. Thank you very much. Paul asked me a wee while ago if I would come tonight. And uh, if I'm honest, if I had a known when he asked me if I, that I was speaking in Daniel's chapter 7 and 8, I may well have been busy tonight and not been able to make it because they're very challenging uh, passages to speak on. But I'll uh, just share with you what I've been enjoying in my own uh, preparation and just pray as well that God would use that uh, and speak to us uh, for his glory as well. Um, I, all I ever wanted to do was to join the police from what I can remember as a wee fella. So I never really paid too much attention in school, wasn't very interested. Um, as soon as I got to the end of secondary school, left, went to uh, tech for a couple of years and then joined the police <clears throat> at 18. Never was really particularly happy about that since I was sent to London Derry. And at that stage, still a lot of trouble and all the rest of it. So I left after about two years. I uh, went back home, got a job, worked for a wee while, got heavily involved in church. And then um, about 13 years ago or thereabouts, they appointed me as youth pastor in the church, uh, which I did up until about maybe four years ago. And because <clears throat> the sort of schools ministry grew so much, uh, the church now commended me and supported me to work in school. So most days I'll be in a primary school or secondary school taking an assembly or a lesson or a scripture union or whatever that may be. And it's a real privilege to be here tonight, just to be able to share uh, from the Bible, from God's Word, and to try and sort of encourage you uh, and challenge you from these passages um, that I've been asked to look at. Let me take you back several years to the final of the Champions League, the football. 
uh, I was uh, <coughs> injured. So I was on the bench, and um, I just would have been in the game, of course, if I had been fit. But I was on the bench, and it was coming towards the end of the match, one each, uh, Manchester United-Barcelona. And uh, it was worth the risk, I think, putting me on, because I'm such a fantastic footballer. So it comes to the end, and Ferguson looks over and gives me the wee nod. And as I stood up, uh, the crowd in front, if you know Old Trafford, the football stadium, the crowd in front of the dugout, they realized that something was happening and that I was going to be coming onto the pitch. So as I stood up, they all stood up and got excited and started chanting my name, Glenn Johnson's my name. So the, half of the crowd are all, Johnston, Johnston, Johnston. And then as other people realized what was happening, nudging each other, they saw me coming out. And three quarters of the stadium are chanting my name, excited about me about to enter onto the pitch at Old Trafford. So on I come, only about five minutes left, and uh, picked up the ball and about halfway line and got through maybe five or six of their players, got into the box, and just as I was about to pull the trigger and shoot, one of their defenders slid in and just sighed the legs completely from under me, set me up in the air, sprawling flat on the ground, and I was a wee bit groggy because he didn't really wipe me out. And as I sort of looked up, I saw two things. One was the whistle in the referee's mouth, and the other one was him pointing to the spot penalty. So, of course, I won the penalty. So I picked up the ball, I put it on the spot, I looked at the keeper, and I uh, just gave him a wee wink, and then <laughs> blew a wee kiss at him. And then I stepped back, and I just stroked the ball perfectly. Got to the right of the ball, and I just curled it right up into the top corner of the net. Now the whole stadium, bar the Barcelona fans, they're going ballistic, shouting my name and cheering. And I had won with the last kick of the game, the Champions League for Man United. And then I sort of was aware of this shaking going on. And my mum slapping me about the face and said, well, you get up for school, it's time to go to school. It's just been a dream. Of course. And I have had some doozies of dreams. I don't know about you, some really bizarre dreams that I can remember uh, through the course of my life. Most often, sadly, haven't come true. And we're going to read <clears throat> tonight from Daniel about these really bizarre dreams. But the thing about Daniel's dreams is they're so incredibly accurate. When you look at the detail of what God revealed to him through dreams and look at what actually happened as a result of that. So if you have Bibles with you, look at Daniel uh, chapter 7. We're going to read a wee bit of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Um, and what we're going to read about, these are the sort of dreams that if you had these dreams, you would drink loads and loads of coffee because you would never want to go to sleep again because they are terrifying, the dreams that Daniel had, and the detail of them and some of the things that come into his mind. About two years ago, uh, Lara's six now, and she was about four uh, or thereabouts. We live quite high up, uh, our house quite high up. And this particular night, it was quite sort of windy, and the rain was beating off the side of the window. And in the middle of the night, I sort of got off to sleep. But our bedroom door, early hours of the morning, our bedroom door sort of uh, pushed open. It didn't make that noise, but it's much better than just that's not as effective. So the bedroom door was open. And I could hear these wee uh, thumping noises on the ground. So I'm lying with the duvet cover up around my neck and sort of, you know, looking. It's pitch black and just having a wee look to see if I could see anything. And the bottom of our bed, the duvet cover went up a wee bit and this lump appeared in it. And it started to just come further and further and further up the bed. Now my wife, she's out for the count, but I'm lying there quite sort of frightened, wondering what this thing is. And as it came further and further and further up, it came right up beside my head, this lump in the bed in the middle of the night. And then the covers went back, and we Lara, who about four at that stage, just the bright red face and the big eyes, just like this. 
And the wind had wakened her up in the rain, and she'd had a nightmare. She was terrified. She would not go back into her bed at all. Spent the rest of her, the night in our bed. And the dreams that Daniel had, if you had these sort of dreams, honestly, you wouldn't sleep after. They're terrifying. And some of the things that he experienced and some of the visions that God put into his head were absolutely terrifying. If you were here, I suppose, whatever many weeks ago, four, five, six weeks ago, when you looked at Daniel chapter 2 uh, and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and if you look back to his dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, remember he had this dream of a statue, huge big statue, gold uh, head, chest and arms of silver, uh, belly and thighs of bronze, and then feet of iron and clay. And the interpretation of that dream was the kingdoms that would come, the Babylonian, the Medes and Persians, and then the Greeks, uh, and then the Romans. And actually this dream in Daniel chapter 7 is really, really similar to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. So let's look, Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, we'll read, this is NIV I'm reading from. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in a vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. The, this beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was as white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before them. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority <clears throat> but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's just pray briefly before we think about some of the things uh, in this passage of Daniel 7. Father, thank you for the eternal word of God. And thank you you've given it to us uh, so that we can understand more of your plan. And even though sometimes it's difficult, it's challenging, 
Thank you that you want us to explore it, to look at it, to use our minds, and ultimately to be challenged as to how we live in our daily lives. So I pray that you would speak through your word tonight, not my words, but your words and your spirit speaking into individual lives and hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. See what I mean about it being terrifying and bizarre? <laughs> There's no doubt about it. That is a very bizarre dream to have. And actually, if you were the person having that dream, a frightening, a terrifying dream of all these different images and beasts and teeth and clay and wings and all these sorts of things, lions uh, and leopards. When you look at the nation of Israel down through, your, through their history, if ever you've looked at Israel, God's chosen people and their nation and what has happened to them, as a nation, you'll see time and time again that God in his sovereignty has allowed difficulty to come into their nation. And he has done it time and time again as punishment because they have not followed God. And these nations, these uh, different images, the Babylonian Empire and the Persian and the Greece, and God has used different nations right the way throughout history, or Israel's history to punish them. And he actually warned them time and time again. It's not as if in a vindictive way he thought, I think I'll just bring somebody into their life here to sort of chastise them a wee bit or give them a wee bit of difficulty. God warned them time and time again and said to them, see if you don't come back to me. People are going to come. They're going to take you away from where they live. you live. You're going to be exiled. And that happened through the Assyrians and then through the Babylonians and then through the Persians. God warned them about all these things that were going to happen. And he challenged them. But time and time again, they as a nation turned their back on God. I've been doing some study recently in the book of Judges. And there's a wee phrase that comes time and time again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then God allowed the different nations to come, different enemies, the Philistines and the Midianites and all these nations to come and to punish and to oppress Israel. Uh, and it was God giving them a wake-up call and saying, you need to come back to me. You've gone away from me. You need to return to me. You need to come back to me as your first love. And even through all of those things, God was always in control. And we need to remember that. See, as you look at this dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had and these visions and dreams that Daniel had of these different nations and what was going to happen, there is never any time at all in this period of history or the history that's to come that God is not in control. God is fully in control. Right the way throughout this period in Israel's history, God was in control. He, in his sovereignty, he allowed these things to happen. In his providence, he allowed these things to happen. And that is a very important thing to remember because sometimes, see when we look at these passages, I'll be honest with you, some of these passages in the Bible melt my head in terms of trying to understand what they're talking about and what they mean. But you know what I'm absolutely certain of, 100% convinced? God is a God who is in control of this world and every aspect of it. You look at the mess of the world that we live in. I sort of fear, if I'm honest, uh, trying to raise my wife and I, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, and looking at the amount of rubbish and filth and nonsense, which is normal now, and panicking about that. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, God's in control. Even though all this stuff goes on, God is on the throne. He is God. He is sovereign. His son is king of kings and lord of lords. And history is in his hands. Every aspect of it is in his plan as well. And as we try and look at this and try and think about what has happened, what is going to happen, please have that at the very forefront of your mind. There is a God in heaven who is in control of all of this. Irrespective of how we try and interpret it or try and figure it out or work it out, God is in full control of all of these things. 
And it's exactly the same in these events in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's dream. And if you contrast uh, those dreams that they had, Nebuchadnezzar dreamt of a statue with four different parts of it. And in this dream, Daniel dreams of four different animals, four different beasts. And what they speak of, which is what is good, when you go on in the chapter, it's not a matter of me trying to figure it out or you trying to figure it out. It gives you the interpretation of a part of the dream. The lion that Daniel saw was the Babylonian Empire, which took over from the Assyrian Empire, which ruled the world, large parts of the world, for a certain period of time in history. And then the bear, which came after that, say the bear slightly raised up on one side, that represents the Persian Empire and the Medes. And the reason it was slightly raised on one side is because the Persians were more powerful than the Medes. They were superior to them. And then as it goes on down, it talks about the leopard, the leopard represents the Greek empire. And the reason it's represented by a leopard is because Alexander the Great went through the world at an enormous rate, an alarming rate, and took over most of the modern world uh, through his conquests. And that is what it's referring to. The remarkable thing about this, so many people doubt the Bible and doubt the authenticity of the Bible. Daniel had these visions 200 years before the Greek empire even was in existence. But he speaks in tremendous detail about the leopard, and then after that, the four heads that come out of that. And those four heads represent four different generals. After Alexander the Great died, four generals of the Grecian empire who came. And that's all prophesied in, in a vision 200 years before there was any Greek empire. So if you doubt whether God knows about these things and plans these things, you look at all these prophecies and all these visions and all these dreams and look back over history, how they came about and how God uh, arranged and how he moved and how he um, orchestrated these things. And then in chapter 8 and verse uh, 8 and 9, it talks about this horn, this bizarre image of this horn. And people say that that's a guy called uh, Antichrist IV, uh, Epinus, I think is the, the pronunciation of it, a ruthlessly cruel ruler. And what he did is he defiled the temple. He stopped worship. He put an idol in the middle of the temple. And there's, in chapter 8, it mentions 2,300 days. This guy ruled from 171 BC until 165 BC, 2,300 days. <laughs> the Bible is incredible in its accuracy. It's not just random chance, these things. These things are forewarned, foretold, and then God delivers these things because God is in control. God is on the throne. And there's incredible accuracy. And at the end of both of these dreams, let me read chapter 2 uh, and verse 44 because the end of both of these dreams is very, very similar. In the time of those kings, it says, this is chapter 2, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure. And in chapter 7, uh, verse 9 to 14, let me just read that for you as well. 7, 9 to 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Throne, flaming fire, its waves were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing. Coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There is a lot in this book that we can't fully understand, and people who are so much more intelligent uh, than me and much more godly than me do not understand, no matter how long they've studied it for and what they've studied. And there's a lot as we look at this, especially as you think about Bible prophecy. And when you get into the book of Revelation and all these things and try and work out what happens when and what comes about at what particular stage, there's lots of it that we cannot be sure of. But there's stuff that we can absolutely be sure of. And as you look at Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, it's this. See, no matter what authority or ruler or power is in control at whatever period of history in this world that we live in, ultimately, all of those will fall away, will finish, will end. But God's kingdom, God's eternal rule will never, ever, ever end. There is nothing that compares to it. There is nothing that is anything like it whatsoever, the kingdom of God. And at the end of chapter 2 and in this passage in chapter 7, after these visions, it talks about the ancient of days in chapter 7 and the eternal kingdom in chapter 2. And ultimately, that is what is going to happen at the end of history as God wraps it up. His eternal kingdom will go on for all eternity. He will be on the throne and His Son, the Lord Jesus. And people that know Him will spend all eternity in His presence, in heaven, a perfect place, a place that nothing compares to, a place where there will be no oppression, sickness, death, sadness, tears, none of those things, a perfect kingdom that God is going to establish. And that is going to be the end of all these things. And I hope that you're looking forward to that, and I hope you're excited about that aspect as we think about these things. All the kingdoms and the powers of this world and the ones that are mentioned in these visions, the Babylonian Empire at that stage was the greatest empire in the world. And then when the Persians came along, they wiped out the Babylonians. They took them over. They became the greatest kingdom in the known world. And then the Greek Empire, through Alexander the Great, conquered much of the world and superseded all of those before them. And they became the strongest. And then the Roman Empire, ruthless, went through much of the modern world and oppressed the Jews and uh, all the nations and God's people for so many years. And at one stage or another, every single person living under those rules looked and thought, there's going to be no one greater than the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. But you know what? Every single one of those kingdoms fell apart and they ended and their rulers ended. Let me tell you something and be no, in no doubt of this. The kingdom of God will never, ever, ever be superseded. It will never end. It will never diminish. Nothing will ever be better than that. Nothing will ever stand against that. God's eternal rule and God's eternal kingdom. And as you look at these passages and try and figure out what they're talking about, for me, the main message that comes out of these two chapters in Daniel is all these other kingdoms finished. But at the end of them, God stands eternal. God stands powerful. God stands victorious. I hope you're excited about that as you look at this world and the mess that it's in. That there is a God who is in full and complete and 100% and utter control. And I hope he is the God that you know personally as your father. And I hope you know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. And when you look at passages like this, I grew up in a gospel hall. 
And if you've grown up in that context, there's a fascination with end times, with the book of Revelation. And you have to know all about that and all about what happens when and who goes first and will you be here when this happens. Do you know what? As valid as that is and as good as it is to look at these things, I think we miss the point so often on these things as we try and figure them out. And I think ultimately as I think about these things, the message is this. One day, probably soon actually, God is coming back. All these kingdoms are going to go away and God's eternal kingdom is going to start. And there's two very clear applications from that. And as you look and have looked at the book of Daniel and look at his courage and his courage, the courage of his friends to stand against these rulers and authorities and powers and to say, actually, we're from a better kingdom, a greater kingdom, we're from God's kingdom. There's two applications that are so striking, I think. One is, if you are not a Christian, if you have never come into a relationship with the Lord Jesus, have never accepted his forgiveness, one day, I believe very soon, this world is going to finish and you're going to stand before God and you're going to worship the Lord Jesus. Because it says in Philippians, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will do that. People now don't do it. They're not interested. They don't believe it, whatever. One day, every single person who has ever lived in all of human history will stand, will bow the knee, not because they're forced to do it, but because they'll realize actually he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you know what breaks my heart? For so many people, it's too late then because their fate is already decided because they've rejected this kingdom that God offers, this peace, this forgiveness, this love. They've rejected it. They've lived their lives for themselves. They're in charge of their own lives. They're king of their own kingdom. And the other application is this, and I think as I have read through this over the last couple of weeks and studied for it, this is the thing that's come most forcefully to me. I have a brother and two sisters who don't know the Lord. I have friends that I speak to every day and neighbors that I speak to every day about all sorts of stuff. <laughs> My next door neighbor's a Liverpool fan, so him and I are constantly bantering each other about football. I talk the biggest load of nonsense sometimes to people. Yet, the Bible teaches clearly that God's kingdom is going to arrive someday soon. And the people that don't know him are going to spend eternity cast out of that. And I know that. My life's been transformed by that. From when I was 10, I realized that, understood that. And how urgent am I about that? As I read this and realize God is going to come, he's going to send Jesus back again. He's going to come and he's going to take people. How excited am I about that? How urgent am I about that? What difference am I making about that? What about the people who don't know him? Am I spending any time explaining? Not explaining all these prophecies and times and all the rest of it, but explaining the reality. He's coming back. He's going to come back and he's going to take people that know him to be with him. And there's so many people who are not ready for that. And my challenge would be for the majority of you who are Christians, as you think about these things and look at these things, what are you doing now? What are you doing in your day-to-day -day life to tell people and to plead with people to come into this relationship? As Christians, we say our lives have been radically changed when we met the Lord Jesus. I wonder how much our lives have been changed, if I'm honest with you. Because I look at my own life so often, I'm so apathetic, I'm so lazy. There's so much else takes my attention and my time. Well, we need to wise up, actually, and wake up to the reality that God is going to come and establish his eternal kingdom. The Ancient of Days, the King of Kings, is going to come very, very soon. And we need to be making a difference with our daily lives. Now let me just read 
some verses. You don't need to turn to these because I want to flick back and forward. But I was thinking about these verses uh, as I prepared um, for today. And these are very encouraging, I think, as we think about these things. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. As we think about all these kingdoms, all these rulers, all these authorities, God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, from Satan's kingdom, and put us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, and redeemed us, has bought us, has purchased us, has forgiven us, and given us the forgiveness of sins. Daniel 7, 27 talks about that day when the ancient of days will come and that kingdom will be established, that eternal kingdom. Philippians 2, uh, we'll hear this a lot over the next month, probably at Christmas. Uh, the Lord Jesus and the step of humility, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, became as a servant. He made himself as nothing, took the form of a servant being made in human likeness and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then what does it say at the end of that? Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him the name above every name, above every ruler, above every kingdom, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, 3 and 4. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And listen to this and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. God's eternal kingdom, his eternal salvation, which we will enjoy and which we will appreciate. And then just finally, as maybe a challenge to us in terms of what we're doing about these things and what difference they make in our lives, First Thessalonians um, 5 and 2, or 5 and 1 and 2. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I have never come across anybody who wants to break into a house. And they'll arrive at night, half nine or ten at night, and knock the door. And the door opens, hello, how are you doing? I'm going to come back about half past two and steal your DVD in your car. All right, see you later. Cheerio. That's stupid, isn't it? <laughs> it says here, that's what the way God's going to send Jesus back like a thief in the night it's not going to announce that he's just going to come he's just going to arrive when people least expect it and for me this is the biggest challenge I think uh, of these passages uh, from Matthew chapter 24 and listen very carefully just as I read these verses and then as I pray to what it says um, about the end times Matthew 24 36 to 44 is a few verses but I want you just to listen to them now, no one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Whenever God sends his Son to wrap up this world, that's what it's going to be like. People are clueless to it. They're just getting on with their day-to-day -day lives. They're doing what they enjoy. They've no thought of God. And it's going to come as a huge shock to many, many people when he comes back. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
See, as you look at these prophecies, and as you think of these visions that Daniel saw, and as he talks so clearly and so accurately about kingdoms that have been here, that will fall, that will fail, and will stumble, and ultimately, as he encourages us to think of God's eternal kingdom, that's what it's going to be like, <laughs> like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the hour. So for me, the biggest challenge, and I'm not sure if it's what you anticipated I would speak on or what I would bring out of these two chapters, but for me, this was the most forceful message that came out as I prepared this and prayed about it. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus is going to arrive like a thief in the night. The world is going to end suddenly. Now, we can look at signs and times and events and all the rest of it, but ultimately, he is coming like a thief in the night. And people that don't know him, I need to tell people about him. And if you don't know him, you need to be ready for him coming. Because he's just going to arrive and he's going to say to you, what did you do? What did you do with my salvation? Oh, I was too busy or I wanted to think about it later. That's no good. What did you do? Yeah, I didn't really understand the flu. That's no good. What did you do? <laughs> there's going to be no excuse then. It's going to be too late. And actually, I think there's lots of Christians are going to be so embarrassed, me included, as we stand before the Lord. Why didn't you tell people? Why didn't you spend more time instructing people? You knew you spoke about it at the CU one night. Why did you not go and tell people the next day about the reality of the kingdom of God? Come on, what were you doing? What was more important than that? I think we're going to be so embarrassed. And I would challenge you as I challenge myself, let's be ready for these things. Let's realize they're going to happen. And there's people who don't know, and we do know if we're Christians. And let's be out and about God's work and tell them and show them and plead with them and arrange things so that they can come like the eye cafe and things like that so that people can come in and can engage with this message and hopefully ultimately their lives be changed as a result of it. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you that you are in full control of this world. Thank you that your son sits on the throne, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. We worship you for him. Thank you that he came to this world. He set foot on this planet. He didn't just come and shake hands and kiss a few babies. He came here and he got involved in people's lives. He spent time with people. He wept for people. He listened to people. He healed people. He said the most amazing things. But thank you that ultimately he came to die on a cross to shed his blood for our sin. And thank you he's coming back. And when he comes back, irrespective of what the power, the kingdom, the rule, the authority in this world currently is, It'll fail, it'll fall, it'll stumble, it'll finish. And his eternal kingdom will be established. And nothing will remove that. We praise you. What a future for those of us who know you we have. What a hope we have in him and in that kingdom. And I pray you'll challenge our hearts. If anyone doesn't know that yet and doesn't know you yet, that tonight before they go out of here, they'll respond to your love and your salvation. And for those of us who know it, we'll not be fixated at trying to work out particular aspects or things that are going to happen and when and where and all the rest of it. We'll simply accept the fact that it's happening and people need to know about it. So I pray again, my words will be completely forgotten about before we finish here, but your words will challenge our hearts for the glory of your Son and for the extension of his kingdom. Amen. Thank you very much for your attention. Appreciate it. Questions for you if you'd like to come back up to see you so far. Um, so, first spiritual question of the night. Doesn't Glenn Johnson play for Liverpool? <laughs> yeah, that's another Glenn Johnson. <laughs> um, okay. 
So um, when you say about realizing what, Christian, reali- realizing what Christianity meant, did the fear of God play a part in you becoming a Christian? Yeah, actually, Revelation is a very difficult and very challenging book, but it's through Revelation I became a Christian. The, the Sunday school teacher basically, uh, he read from uh, Revelation 20, you know, the great white throne, and he said books were opened uh, and uh, names were recorded, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. And he basically said, uh, which is maybe not a popular message now, and maybe we don't say it enough, he said, if you're not ready, if your name's not written in the book, if you're not a Christian, when he comes back, you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. So if I'm honest, I became a Christian through fear, uh, not really understanding. I didn't become a Christian because God loved me or because Jesus died for me. I became a Christian because I was terrified uh, at him coming back and me being left behind. Uh, and then I grew to understand and appreciate his love and his grace and his forgiveness. But ultimately, it was through fear of waking up one day and realizing loads of people had gone and I had been left. Um, if God gave us free will, why did he punish people for not following him when it should be our choice? Well, we're getting the dodgy ground. <laughs> people have different, uh, very, very different views and opinions on on free will and uh, election and all these sorts of things. Um, I look at it as a father and think, you know, my two wee girls, it would seem very, very unfair to me that they, they're born and have no choice basically in terms of whether they respond to God or not. God is a God who punishes sin and who gives people an opportunity. And what I quoted there from the book of Judges, God time and time again warned them. He gave them free will and he said that if you follow me, this is what's going to happen. If you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. So it's not that it's a vindictive God giving free will and then just punishing. It's a God who says, if you do this, this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And his people said, actually, we're not interested, God. Thank you very much. We'll do our own thing. And then God punishes. I'm more comfortable with a God who punishes sin and gives us free will than uh, a God who just says, I do what you want, you're coming anyway, it doesn't matter. The image of a, a God like that who is a holy God sits more comfortably with me. I don't know whether that answers your question or not. That's my, my understanding of it, my view of it. Um, and final question, why do you think Jesus will come soon? I know people have said this for years. You know, I remember my granda, who's been dead now for maybe 20 years, sort of saying, oh, he's going to be coming back soon. But I, I think just when you look at the, at the mess of the world, you know what it says, these passages that there'll be famines and floods and earthquakes and you look now at the state of the world and all these things are becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, th- there are still prophecies to be fulfilled before he comes back, but you're starting to see those being fulfilled. There's a prophecy in Isaiah uh, that someone in our church was talking about at the weekend and it says that Damascus will lie in ruins. Damascus is Syria. <laughs> And if you've watched recently in the news, Syria is being reduced to ruins, being bombed, it's being destroyed. And there's just things like that uh, that I see. And I mean, it may well, I don't know, it may well be that it's another 10, 20, 30, whatever, 100 years, I don't know. But I just get the sense that the world can't keep going on in the mess that it's in. And every generation is moving further and further and further away from God. And I just get the sense that actually God is going to say enough um, and that that will be sooner rather than later. Cool. Actually, just got another question here. Um, what happens to people who have never heard about God like a tribe? Who have never? Never heard about God. It, 
everyone will get an opportunity. Uh, however that happens, there's different interpretations of that. You know, people after the day will get an opportunity to respond, or every single person will get an opportunity to hear the gospel and to make an informed decision. There's other passages, of course, in Romans, you know, that talk about God's uh, eternal power seen in creation so that men are left without excuse. But every single person will get an opportunity to understand, to hear, and appreciate the gospel. God is not going to come back and someone that hasn't heard said, right, sorry about that, that's your bad luck. <laughs> You're cast out from my presence. Everyone will get an opportunity. And you look at the other side of that coin as well. I have a nephew who's 13 now, and uh, he was, when he was born, he was starved of oxygen. So he's very severely mentally and physically uh, disabled. He can't understand very much, if anything at all. Uh, my understanding for him and for children before the age of understanding is that they will be in heaven. Because <laughs> God is a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. He's not a vindictive God. So people will be given opportunity. Right, I'll look at another one. <laughs> um, what do you mean after they die, they'll have a chance? Yeah, there, there is. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to say anything else now because you'll say, what do you mean by this? There, there are, I, 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 to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. We need to look here when I finish. There are different passages that talk about different occasions and different people groups who will stand and will be given an opportunity and will hear the message and I would need to have a wee look. Uh, see, to be honest with you, see all these things. I don't know enough about these things. Some of these things, is, you know, you hear from other people and all the rest of it. But if you take an example of someone that lives in a tribe in Africa who has never heard the gospel and who dies, I cannot imagine that God would just say, unlucky, can't see it. And how that works or how God will allow that to happen or how God will speak to them, my understanding is that God is a God of love who wants to give people an opportunity. Uh, to respond. Yeah, that's it. Um, thank you very much, Glenn. That was really great and interesting words. Um, I think we're going to have Marcus come back up and close us in praise. By the way, feel free to sort of ask. I'm not promising I'll be able to add, answer them. Oh, wait. Hold <laughs> on, I've got another question. <laughs> <laughs> when are you guys going to stop? Um, what do you think of the... What do you think the... Uh, of understanding is, I don't know what that is. The age Word of understanding? Yeah, it could no, be yeah. It's different, I think it's different for, well you even look at children and people are, you know, how they understand things. I think it's different. Uh, both my daughters, uh, Ellie when she was five, uh, Lara when she was six I think, uh, Heidi, my wife, said she became a Christian when she was four. I know some children who would have no concept, no idea, no understanding of what it means, who are a wee bit older than that. So it's not for me to judge and say, put a particular age on it. God knows that, and God judges that, and God knows when people understand and how they understand. So that's what I mean by that, the age of understanding, where they can actually conceptually in their mind figure out, this is what it means, this is what I have to do. That's what I mean by it. Right, I'm going to sit down now before anybody asks any questions. <laughs>